that. I'm not sure. We'll see. And, you know, first I, you know, I, I wanted to know a little bit more about what, what was going on in this meeting and, and what kind of shares people did. And, you know, I asked Rady and she said, just be real, um, which I thought was interesting since I have such a history of fantasy and uh, it's really what I'm going to be talking about. And, uh, you know, Donnie, I think that was you who said just, uh, you know, anything except uh, not God or religion. And of course, that made me want to talk about God and religion, because that's it. Kind of I, I didn't say that. In fact, last week, that's what we had. Somebody okay. talking about God and religion. Yeah, it's like, OK, if you say that I can't do something, mm, that makes me want to do it all the more. But um, I'm, 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 I'm not going to go down that road. Okay. Not, well, maybe a little bit, you know. Maybe just a you know a squeak into it. Um, so anyhow, actually, what what popped into my head apropos of I don't know nothing or apropos of religion, what were the song lyrics to uh, Pinocchio and um, when you wish upon a star makes no difference who you are, anything your heart desires will come to you. So why did I think of that? Fantasy, religion, fantasy, religion, fantasy. And, um, and that made me think of oh, that, you know, that, that's my life. That, that really has been my life. Um, fantasy really actually kept me alive because, um, you know, I, um, I grew, I grew up in a, a family with, uh, a father who was uh, a violent alcoholic. I was born 71 years ago uh, on the day that the last King of England died. And when I discovered that fact, when I was, I don't know, I was around 10, I started working royal themes into my fantasy life. The fantasy life that I would escape into when uh, the violence in my family got really bad, which was frequent because my, my father, you know, drank regularly. And he had impulse control and he had rage issues, just like his father before him. Nothing had been dealt with. He was raised Catholic and uh, the nuns beat him. And so he raised us atheists because he didn't want us to have a violent experience that he experienced in Catholic school. So instead, he just he just made sure we had a violent experience within our household. And uh, specifically, it was directed toward. Uh, my mother, who he beat with his fists and a, and a belt, and also my two brothers. Now, I um, I was a middle child, and I I um, I learned to observe. I learned to be a very careful observer and a very quiet observer. And I would uh, I would take the temperature of the room, and when I could tell things were getting hot, I would leave. Or um, you know, I. I thought that my brothers were and my mother were crazy. It's like, why are you, why are you saying those things? He's going to blow. Somebody's going to get hit, and somebody did. But it, it usually wasn't me. And so I, I used to wonder long, long afterwards why I had been so affected by that violence. And it was only when I did a little bit of research into um, battered wife syndrome and adult children of alcoholics that I discovered that witnessing that kind of violence is itself uh, a great form of violence. So anyhow, I didn't really develop much emotional maturity because when the going got tough, I left. I just, I clicked out. And, um, you know, it might even happen during the share. Uh, I, I, I may go blank because when I recall what it was like in the past, 
I have a tendency to dissociate and um, I, I don't want to do that, but it's, it's something that can happen automatically. So I made some notes and, you know, so I'm referring to my notes, so, you know, full honesty here. Uh, um, you know, I learned how to be an alcoholic by watching my father, apparently. Uh, he taught me that uh, I could be a, um, I could be a functional alcoholic, that I could have a job and I could be an alcoholic, that I could drink at night and not during the day. And that if I kept my behavior confined, people wouldn't know that much about me. Now, my, um, my rage would, would, would surface, but I, I was not a violent alcoholic. I was a, um, I was a verbal, uh, you know, a verbal rageaholic, not a, a physically violent alcoholic. And I would, you know, I learned when people hurt me how to rip them apart, which didn't help things. And, you know, of course, then I could always escape into a fantasy because that's what I learned to do when I was a child. Oh, and, and I wasn't allowed to talk about any of this. That was another thing. And, I, and of course, it was my mother who forbade me from talking. My mother who stopped, you know, who would like, you know, put her hand on my hand when I was calling the police. And she would forbid me to call the police. She would forbid me to say anything that was going on. And, you know, she put lipstick on the pig. Uh, I just kept my mouth shut. You know, I, I had been an honest kid. I learned to keep my mouth shut. I learned to try to be as invisible as I possibly could. Uh, so anyhow, I was raised atheist in a, a household in what is now Silicon Valley. And I was raised in um, a very techie family, um, you know, which has had an influence on, on me. And, uh, you know, in a way I see how that technology has had an influence on others too. And I always think, no, 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 don't, don't, don't go that route. Don't, don't, you know, don't get sucked into those little machines because they come from the inability to communicate with other people. And I know that firsthand. So anyhow, that was my reality. I also had the reality since I had moved, my, my parents had moved into the Silicon Valley, Santa Clara Valley is what it was called then, when it was uh, wide open spaces, when it was orchards, when I rode my bike, um, through, uh, through the orchards to go to school. And that gave me a real sense of freedom that I could be out and about that, uh, you know, I wasn't trapped. My parents' life was so chaotic that they didn't, you know, they, could, they couldn't get babysitters for us because we were uncontrollable. We would go out at night. They wouldn't, we wouldn't have to tell them when we were coming home. We just, I, I, I didn't have that kind of a life. I didn't. And that probably saved me. Um, you know, because I, I definitely um, develop suicidal tendencies. Sometimes my fantasies didn't work and I would get a pin and I would scrape at my, my veins when I, you know, I, but I was sort of a wimpy scraper, you know, I didn't really draw a lot of blood, you know, that may be too much information, but um, that was, you know, that was my life. Uh, not too happy, pretty self-absorbed too, as a, as a result of that. Anyhow, I can never um, really separate my own drinking from what, uh, you know, my, uh, my history background, my, my, I'm sorry, my family background of drinking and violence. The, the two were intimately related 
So it was always hard for me to think, well, when I got sober, well, how do I keep, how do I keep things separate here? How do I just talk about my drinking? When it emerged from uh, a situation that, you know, involved being a child of an alcoholic. So anyhow, back to my fantasy, I, uh, I took revenge against my father's atheism by reading the Bible. And I was really attracted to the miracles, you know, those pictures that had, you know, saints with halos. And I really wanted to be one. And I, I wanted a miracle to happen to me. It did. I, I believed in those miracles. And then I would pray to God that, you know, if God would only do something for me, I, I promised I would believe in him forever which was, you know, it was a lie. I always went back on it. But anyhow, I, I, I did believe that something could happen. I, I had to have something. I had to have that crutch. And so I would pull those little bits and pieces of religion that I, I learned from the Bible into my grandiose fantasies about, uh, you know, about myself, um, you know, that had, you know, royal connotations since, of course, I was the reincarnation of the last king of England and, you know, things always worked out so well for me in those fantasies, but I didn't know how to have a conversation with another human being. And that, you know, that wasn't great. That wasn't great. So anyhow, I was also really into those, those three kids in Fatima, Portugal, who, who saw the, uh, the, the appearances of the Virgin Mary. And, and that to me just, you know, I just thought, oh, you know, maybe I'm going to see a miracle. Maybe that's going to happen to me one day. I'm just going to, I'm just going to keep hoping that that'll happen. And you know what, what I really discovered was that I, I didn't need to, you know, to beg to a God and I didn't need to believe in those miracles. I needed to find my voice. And there was a point in my life that I, that I did. And that was after I discovered um, other people, uh, other adult children of alcoholics and other, um, you know, other kids whose mothers had also been beaten and other mothers who had been beaten and, and how they recovered from that. And it was important for me to make those connections and to find that voice. And that, that was a part of my recovery. Um, you know, I haven't really gotten up to the point where I drank. My father gave me my first drink when I was five. It was beer and I liked it. When I was 17, I... Um, I found out that I had absolutely no control over my drinking. I never struggled with the first step that I was powerless over alcohol because from the get-go, I tried to have a drink. I tried to limit it to that. When it didn't happen, I swore the next time it was never going to happen again. And it happened again, and it happened again, and it happened again. I had absolutely no control, not over that chemical. Uh, when I was young, I used to mix up... Um, chemicals in my chemistry set because I wanted to find the perfect concoction that would make me invisible yeah. because if I could be invisible then um, nobody would see that I was in pain or you know nobody would pry I could you know I could be there but not be there and that's what I wanted I just you know I wanted oblivion and I didn't you know I did I didn't really want to kill myself but I did think that if, if I ever really got to that point where things were insufferable, the Golden Gate Bridge was there and I could jump. You know, the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, that was like a beacon to me. But instead, drugs and alcohol uh, were my oblivion. They, um, they made me feel alive and they made me feel dead. Uh, 
we were talking about printing a few of us earlier. And in that printing world, I lived with some other printers and we would sit around the table at night. We were on swing shifts, so we were sort of the, you know, the bad girls. And, you know, we'd get home and we'd drink and we'd talk about how, oh God, if we keep doing this, we're going to become alcoholics. But it was a joke. We didn't really believe it. And then it happened. I was drinking every day and, and I didn't have any control over it. You know, it just happened. It was anesthesia. You know, it, it worked. It worked for me. It worked to just, you know, deal with those edges of emotional pain that I, you know, I, I, I didn't have a clue how to do it differently. I didn't learn how to do it differently from my home life. I wasn't learning in the, the situations that I was in. And, and so I did that. And then one night I found myself in a lesbian bar in San Francisco. You know, I was, I was getting over a bad breakup and um, I was drinking alone and I decided, okay, you know, I have to go home to Oakland and I'm going to get on the bridge. I'm, I'm not going to look in my, my blind spot. I'm just going to, you know, just zip into traffic, you know, when I merge and, and if I'm meant to live, I'm meant to live. And if I'm meant to die, that's it. I'm going to be dead. And all I heard were, you know, some squealing brakes and some honking. I didn't look in my rearview mirror. I just kept driving. And I figured, okay, I'm not going to die tonight. I wasn't meant to die. And, you know, that it used to mean a lot to me that I wasn't meant to die that night. But what I, I um, you know, what I, what I wasn't thinking of, I could have killed somebody. I could have killed somebody with that. But all I cared about was my own misery. I was so self-absorbed in that that I really didn't give a fuck if my behavior had, you know, negative consequences on, on somebody else. It never even entered my consciousness. But eventually I got sober. I, you know, I tried when I was 26. I failed. That was when I was in printing. I thought willpower would do it. No, didn't last a week. Uh, it was, it was sort of a strange situation because, uh, well, it had to do with fantasy again and grandiosity. I was absolutely sure of my superhuman powers that I could save my, my closest gay friend who I absolutely adored from dying of AIDS in the mid eighties before there were any treatments that were effective. I was positive of this. I invited him to come and live with me. And something happened during that period, something that, uh, that directly led me to end up getting sober. And it was that um, there was so much love in the community at that time. I lived in the Castro in San Francisco. And there were a lot of us going through this. And we were leaning on each other to help, for help. And um, it was, you know... It, we were desperate, but in that desperation, we also had some really intense love. But my friend died. He died because my superhuman powers were in my head. They were all a fantasy. They weren't real. And I, I didn't know anything about death. I didn't know how to deal with it. Fortunately, I was around a few other people in a, in a group dealing you know, with our friends and partners who were, who were dying. And we started to help each other you know get through some of the feelings so after that happened I sat in my apartment for 
you know, the next year drinking alone, drinking alone, sitting on the floor a lot, not knowing how to go forward, knowing that whatever, whatever I had been doing, things had to change. I needed a radical change. And so I got into an adult children of alcoholics group because God damn it, I was going to blame my parents. <laughs> and I was going to be around some other people who were blaming their parents for what was going on in their life too. And it was a very helpful class, very helpful. Um, I said disparaging things about Alcoholics Anonymous and about the whole God thing. You know, I had actually called the, the AA hotline at one point because uh, my rage toward a, a then partner was, um, was over the top. And I decided I had to, I had to do something and I, I attributed it to drinking. But when they said that the meeting was going to be in a church basement, I said, no, I'm not doing that. And so I didn't. And I think that there was that that was an opportunity lost. That if they had said, here's a secular meeting you can go to, you're welcome to come. I probably would have gotten sober then, but uh, that didn't that didn't happen. I had to get a little bit more desperate and uh, desperate I got. Anyhow, at the uh, the end of the adult children of alcoholics class where um, I learned a lot about my family and about the family tree and about how many generations back the, um, the alcohol and drug addiction went. Anyhow, the teacher handed out a flyer for uh, a psychotherapy group or a psychodynamic group. And I had it on my desk and, you know, if I believed in God, you know, I'd say, oh, this whole thing was God driven. Look at that, you know, this, is, this was coming to you. And, but it, you know, that's not really what happened. I, I put it in the trash. I didn't take the trash out because I was lazy. You know, seven, the, you know, one of the seven deadly sins. It's sloth. I was too lazy to take it down the three flights of stairs where I lived. So the next week I fished it out of the trash and I called the number. And I went to the intake and the therapist who was a lesbian in AA said to me, you have to stop drinking and you have to go to meetings if you want to be in this group. And I said, I'm not going anywhere where they talk about God. And she said, here. And she gave me a flyer for Secular Organization of Sobriety. I went to two of those meetings. I hated it. All they did was complain about AA. Now, I didn't know enough about the lingo to know what they were complaining about. And it just sort of bummed me out. It's like, I don't, I don't know what you're talking about. And so I went to a gay AA meeting and I felt like I was at home. Not because I felt at home in a, a setting that was more religious, where you know they had the traditional steps on the wall and sometimes they said the Lord's Prayer, but because it was in the Castro and um, there were people with a sense of humor and it was, it was calm. I just needed some calm. I just needed some calm after all of the drama, after all the drama and the fantasy of my life. I just, I just needed to chill out. Um, but it was really that group, that uh, psychodynamic group that, that saved my life. Because um, they helped me come back into the world. They helped me let go of fantasy and instead learn how to connect with each other. They did not put up with any of my bullshit. And I had a lot of it. I, uh, you know, 
I wore I wore a down jacket for the first meeting that I went to because it was cold in the room and then it heated up and it got so hot I was sweating like a pig but god damn it I was not going to take that down jacket off to let them think I was comfortable not comfortable around them I was going to show them well I didn't show anybody I still have that jacket I still have that jacket I kept it I kept it as a symbol of my ineffective behavior <laughs> of an object lesson for what wasn't working in my life. Um, so anyhow, we had to learn how to talk to each other. I didn't get to just create fantasies about these people in my head. I actually, we, we all had to repattern because we were all coming from families of high dysfunction where our parents were alcoholics. And in that group, we all had to learn to somehow um, connect as if we were in a healthy family. And I stayed sober. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I also did other things. And it was having a comprehensive program that not only kept me sober, but really helped me to recover. And that, uh, you know, for that, I'm very happy that I lived in a creative and a welcoming place like San Francisco. There was somebody, however, who was trying to get me to adopt a higher power who is saying, you know, you have to, and it can be anything. You know, it can even be a stuffed animal. And I thought, really? You know, I'm so into fantasy, which hasn't helped my life. And you're trying to give me another fantasy. No, 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 no. You know, uh-uh. No, no. I, I, I didn't do it. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in a higher power. Um, I worked the steps with others in a group, but we used an Al-Anon workbook because it was more relatable. Uh, I read The Artist's Way and I did all sorts of creative things and that helped me um, get in touch with the creative part of myself that I had let go of. I read the book Soul Retrieval and I went back and I, I gathered together my old selves, you know, my my younger selves that were always disappearing into fantasy. And I, you know, I told them, look, you don't have to do that anymore. You don't have to go into fantasy. You just have to learn how to be vulnerable and and express your feelings and, and talk to other people and be real. So I did that. I listened to people who um, were talking about Buddhism. And I incorporated some of that into my life. I learned a couple of forms of uh, energy work, Reiki and Jinshin Jitsu, and I, I used those to stay calm and centered. I meditated on alternative tarot cards. I did clay, you know, clay days with a friend of mine who's an artist. Uh, I had an individual therapist where I talked about my, my unhealthy attraction to fantasy, shared my fifth step with her. And then the therapist in my, um, my ACA group, Genevieve, gave me a list of emotions. I don't know, there are maybe 75 to 100 of them. And, and I would go down that list and I, I would try to figure out what emotion do I feel? You know, what, what, what do I feel? I mean, I, I was that blocked. I was that stuck. I was that undeveloped emotionally that I had to go back to being, you know, a totally non-functional teenager to learn how to be a human being. And I stayed sober. I didn't drink. 
it was hard at first, but I, I made sure I kept the booze out of my life. When people said, how do you do it? I said, peer group pressure, which was sort of a joke, but not really because I needed all of those people. I needed the peers to stay sober. I met my partner when I was three years sober, my current partner, my wife. Uh, we, we went to couples counseling because we both came from families where there was a lot of alcoholism. Neither of us drank, but we learned how to empathize with each other. We learned how to shut up and listen. We learned how to honor each other's feelings. Incredible. You know, I've been in a relationship for 30 years. I wasn't supposed to be in a relationship. I was supposed to just drink myself into misery and, and you know, fantasize about stuff and watch TV and do God knows what and, you know, just wish that I were dead. But no, so anyhow, the promises of, of, of the big book actually happened for me. I have no cravings for alcohol. Uh, you know, and I have this freedom, but, um, I, I have to be, I have to be honest. I used, I did use the serenity prayer. I even used, you know, the God, you know, the God in the serenity prayer when I got super desperate, um, which happened on airplanes when there was turbulence until I, um, you know, until I taught myself that there was this really bumpy road in, in this area and I would drive my car down it. And I could actually simulate the feeling of, of air turbulence doing that so that the next time it happened on a plane, I thought, oh, no, that, that's no worse than, than driving on frontage road. I mean, come on, you know, just just get over it. And I didn't need to you know, even use the serenity prayer for that. So that was great. And that could be the end of my share. It said, no, no, I stopped going to meetings for 20 years. You know, I moved. I moved from San Francisco to Berkeley. I drifted. You know, I just I drifted. I stayed sober, but I drifted. You know, I had an insular life, so I wasn't going out that much. And then, you know, a partner who didn't drink and it was cozy. And I worked and my mom got Alzheimer's and for 10 years I had to deal with that. And so I um I drifted and I, I even drifted back into fantasy and I didn't feel it was helpful but I couldn't get out of it. And then, uh, and then COVID happened. And uh, somebody said, you know, I have a friend who is having trouble with drinking. Can you help? And I said, sure. You know, I remember the first step and the 12th step and the fourth step, you know, <laughs> three out of 12, that wasn't bad. Uh, but I found out I, I didn't have the tools. And I thought I better get back into meetings because I need to learn the lingo. Because that's all I associated AA with, the lingo, the lingo. And I did. I got back into meetings. I got a sponsor after 31 years. Woohoo. I tried to get a higher power. I tried to mimic people who had long-term sobriety. And the stuff coming out of my mouth just sounded false and phony. And I, I, I had to stop it. I fired my sponsor and she was, she was great. She turned me on to an agnostic sponsor. I was going to gay meetings and there was this woman in the meeting. Her name was Rady. She held up this alternative 12 step book. And then, and then she was talking about this agnostic meeting in Cleveland. And I thought, okay. And I went to it and everything has changed. 
Everything has changed. And that's why I now describe myself as a grateful member of AA. I don't say, hi, my name is Leslie. I'm an alcoholic. I say, hi, my name is Leslie. I'm a grateful member of AA because for the first time in 33 years, I am a member of AA. That's my third step. My agnostic sponsor taught me how to work that third step without fantasy, without God. Her rephrasing of the third step is made a decision to be a member of AA. And I had an epiphany when she said that. And, and I thought, oh, you know what? I can do that. I can, I can do that. I can be a member of AA. I did all of the, I did all of the other stuff. I did all of those other programs. You know, they all helped to keep me sober, but I wanted to be I wanted to be a member of AA because I had a drinking problem and I I had let that go. I just I didn't think it was possible. I thought, well, okay, I can't handle the God stuff, so I'm just going to have to do a different kind of program. Well, now I can be in it and I can even go to um traditional meetings, which I do every day. And I found that by being in, a, in secular meetings, I've got the backbone to be myself, to be visible. I don't have to take, you know, some concoction that I've mixed up from my chemistry set. So nobody can see me if I say something that's going to ruffle their feathers. And um, what do you know? People actually reach out for, to me in these meetings who have higher powers uh, and, and believe in God. And, and they say, I like what you shared. And I love you. So, hey, I love them back. You know, and I love everybody in this meeting. That's really all I've got. Thanks for listening. <laughs>